In the first episode of series five, we looked at the question of whether our understanding of ourselves is reliable, whether through introspection, through consciousness, through thinking we know who we are, we can reliably say who we are, even at the moment when we're saying it. Today, I want to look at a different question, the question of the continuity of the self over time. Now, this is an enormous question, so I'm only going to deal with one or two aspects of it. And quite obviously, one of the most prevalent views is that the self does persist over time, that we are the same when we are born as we are when we die. I don't mean, of course, in the sense that we don't have things that we learn and we don't change our facial and physical characteristics, but that there is some essence of self, if you like a soul, to use the Greek term, an essence of self that we are born with and that we die with, and in some traditions, religions, that we go on afterwards to restore to its initial perfection, if you're a Platonist of some sort. Uh, you'll have gathered by now, listening to these voice notes, that I don't believe this for a moment. I think that there wasn't a time when we existed before we were conceived, and there isn't a time after we die when we will continue to exist, except in that most profound of senses that I love to quote from Rilke, that when we dissolve in infinite spaces, they will taste of us. But there's an interesting question about what happens in between. So let's just think about one particular aspect of this, which is that let's suppose that at a particular time, let's suppose it's noon today, the non-conscious brain of some entity, some individual, some person, throws up into consciousness and makes that person aware of some thought, some idea. If you like, it can be a very good, very powerful, very far-reaching idea, but it really doesn't matter what kind of idea it is. At that particular moment, that self, that person, and its brain, because they are all one and the same, is constituting that physiology, if you like, the total physiology of the body and brain is constituting who that person is. So let's suppose that we have a, a good idea, and if you want just to pin it down, let's suppose we, um, we have Einstein's theory of re general relativity pops into our minds, or something, something like that. Because materialism, in the sense of believing that we are constituted by our material bodies, over which our consciousness and our non-conscious brain supervenes in some sense, we've talked about this repeatedly, the idea is, as you might say, a part of the neurophysiology of the person and therefore a part of the person. So it isn't, although, as I keep saying, language tempts us, tricks us into talking otherwise, and I just did it myself, if you noticed, by talking about a person and its brain as though the it somehow exists separately. But language tempts us into thinking that there is a person and there is a thought and it is the thought that occurs to the person. And the point that I'm trying to make is, no, the 
the thought actually partly changes and constitutes the person. It doesn't occur to the person, it in a sense is the person. Just as your thumb is a part of your body and your eyes are a part of your body and your brain is a part of your body and everything that goes on in your brain, conscious or non-conscious, is neurophysiological at root and therefore you are your body. I mean, there's a German joke, isn't there? Man, der Mann ist, was er ist. Man is what he eats. Uh, but not quite that. We are what we are. We are what our physiologies are. And that's all there is to it. So when this thought crops up at noon, it is a part of ourselves. It is a particular bit of the configuration of our neurophysiological self. A second or two later... Another thought will have replaced it, or another concern will have replaced it. We'll have been distracted. And the thought that occurred and was constituting a part of ourselves at noon, a memory trace will have been laid down in our short-term memory and eventually, perhaps, in our long-term memory. And that will go on being a part of us to the extent that it is remembered, but it won't be a part of our conscious selves to whatever extent it affects the behaviour of our non-conscious selves. And I don't think we know enough about that to be able to give a beginning of an answer as to what extent that does, although I have some ideas and I'll try and remember to come back to them another time. What that means is, let's suppose the person who has the idea at noon is Mr X or Mrs X or Miss X or just let's call them X. A second or two later, they are no longer X. Because the brain that constitutes who they are has moved on, and therefore they have moved on, and therefore they become a new X, X dash, or X2, or whatever you want to call it. And X2 isn't the same as X, can't be the same as X, because the brain, the body, has moved on. The difference may be imperceptible, undetectable, so this real but possibly imperceptible change to X necessarily entails that the body and the brain of X differ, so X differs. And even if it's imperceptible, so that X goes on thinking that he's John or Susan or Margaret or whoever it might be, they're not quite the same. They can't be quite the same. Over time, that means that people will morph from one thing to another. And to the extent that the thoughts that they have are big thoughts that radically change the way they see the world, and there are such things, we can have an idea, and the idea of living the present is one of them. If we have a really big change, we can turn quite a big angle, and our trajectory can thereafter go off in a very different direction. If we're fortunate enough to have a really big idea, something that really makes a difference, both to us and maybe to other people if they listen and if it's a good enough idea, then that idea will make a fundamental difference to the ideas and thinking and the processes that come later and it will affect the non-conscious brain. And so once you've had an idea like general relativity or if you've got into quantum mechanics or perhaps if you've got into some religious belief or some philosophical insight or some scientific fact or theory or whatever it might be, your subsequent trajectory will be changed by that idea. And so you will be changed by that idea. It is not that you are a fixed self. 
something that Saul Kripke wanted completely mistakenly, in my view, to use a rigid designator to name something like Aristotle that he thought was somehow fixed. We are not fixed at all. We change. And there isn't something to which change occurs. The very thing that is in the process of changing is the thing that changes. So it's not like there being a fixed thing upon which, as you like a blackboard, for example, upon which different things are written, because the things that are written are a part of the very process of writing them. So we are changed by the thoughts that we have, and therefore there is no such thing as a persistent self. Conversely, I hear you complain, but hold on a minute, there are continuities. There are senses in which people are the same today as they were yesterday, as they were last year, maybe even as they were a decade or, if they're old enough, a century ago. And to some extent, that is true, in that there are certain characteristics that remain apparently true of them. But one of the things we need to talk about, and I'm not going to do it today because it would make this too long, but one of the things we need to talk about is to what extent do we, as you might say, lock ourselves into that persistence? For example, let's suppose that I don't heed Dewey's advice to live the present time and extract from it as much of its meaning as I can and let that be my preparation for tomorrow. Suppose I spend my life building up a treasure house of things, preparing my retirement, uh, building houses to live in when I get there. Uh, how do I know that by doing all of that, I'm not, as you might say, tying myself down, as I do if I adopt a religious belief? You know, the notion that you accept a religion and then you accept its scripture and the scripture was written thousands of years ago and can never be changed and must always be adhered to and obeyed and so on. It's all nonsense because it's all an attempt to stand still or to say that the world has stood still and it doesn't. But it is possible to engineer situations that will force you to stand still. You know, you can take out a mortgage, which is the theme of this whole podcast. You can take out a mortgage that will require you to go on making payments for the next 25 years, maybe longer, the way the modern economic world is going. And so you've committed to something. You can do the same thing in a relationship. You can do the same thing in a job. You can do the same thing in a philosophy. And you can certainly do the same thing over yourself if and you can start to see the thematic dimension to this, if you are committed to your own persistent consistency. In other words, you can decide to be as close to the same yesterday, today and forever as possible. And that might convict you of the foolish consistency that is the hobgoblin of little minds, just to remind you, since I haven't quoted that for more than two or three episodes. But why? Why does such consistency appeal to us? Why don't we launch out into the deep and see what new things we can discover? The only thing that stops us doing it is either the belief that we can't or the fear of what, happen if we, what may happen if we do. So there is nothing about us that requires us to be consistent or persistent 
as regards our person or as regards ourselves. We can change as much as we want to change. Or, to go back to Heraclitus, we can try as best we can to step or bathe in the same river twice. But the world will never let us. And to some extent, it will permit and facilitate us changing the river we step into as much as we wish to do. So let's try to unmake the sense of the persistence of the self.